Hey guys, it's John. Welcome back. All right, this week is a big one. This week we are talking to Martin Page. Now, he had one hit by his own name in 1994 with the song you're listening to right now, In the House of Stone and Light. But his true kind of claim to fame is he's written some of the biggest songs really of all time, including These Dreams by Heart, King of Wishful Thinking by Go West, and the mother load of all, We Built This City. Now, that is a much maligned song. It is frequently at the top of lists of like most hated song ever. So if you're listening to this and you think, man, I've never liked that song or that song drives me crazy or whatever, think to yourself, I bet you wouldn't mind having been the person who wrote that song. Because that song, as well as all these other hits and tons of other lesser known hits that we talk about in this interview, has provided a very nice life for Martin Page. So we talked about the process of writing those hits. Specifically, We Built This City, which in his mind when he wrote it sounded very, very different than what ultimately came out. We talk about all these other collaborations he's had with Robbie Robertson of the band and Earth, Wind and Fire. This guy's like royalty. I don't know if you guys can quite grasp it, but honestly, he's practically royalty with what he's written and who he's worked with. And we talk a lot about that kind of stuff. The tie-in to movies of the 80s, this is the third part of three interviews we've done that have followed that path, is two things. Number one, he played keyboards on Ray Parker Jr.'s Ghostbusters. Interesting that Ray Parker Jr. makes an appearance for the second week in a row on this podcast. And secondly, in the early 80s, the, how he got his start was in this band called Q-Feel, who never really hit it big, although their sound was very pioneering. It really turned a lot of people on to Martin and what he was doing, what, how he was writing, and his style. But Q-Feel had one song in Girls Just Wanna Have Fun, that great movie, which I'm mad enough to admit I love that movie. Well, it was in that movie, if you've seen the movie, you know the song. We talk about that. We talk about all kinds of things. He was a true gentleman and so, so nice. He called me from his home in LA. Martin Page, thank you and welcome to The Hustle. And I always kick these things off with telling the person I'm talking to how I discovered them. And you are this key factor of one of the most mind-blowing ta-da moments of my entire life. Wow. So, wow, that's yeah. a statement, John. That, that it's me true. Straight away. <laughs> it's true, and it comes in pieces. So hopefully you can appreciate what I'm going to say. Okay. And I hope that this doesn't sound condescending or critical in any way because it's not meant to, but here's the deal. So okay. 1994, I'm 21 years old. I took some time after high school, so I'm just entering college. And I remember seeing the House of Stone and Light video on all the time on VH1. And I recognized right off the bat that you were older, right? That I had – well, not an old right? – Wait, wait, wait. No, no. Turn, uh, turn it off. That's enough of that. Well, no, 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 no. So, I mean, granted, you're, you know, the song is kind of adult yeah. contemporary, and I'm, I'm young, so that's not really my vibe necessarily right then. But I'm, I'm a huge music guy. Yeah. And I can tell right away, I'm thinking, okay, I've never heard of this guy before. He's clearly older, not old, but, you know, you were 35. Yeah, so you were yeah. clearly older than 
some young person who's coming in out of nowhere with their yep. first album, you know, with this huge marketing campaign. Mm-hmm. And so I was just so confused. I just thought, and this is pre-internet, so I can't look you up or anything like that, right? And so I just thought, who, who is this guy? Who, what's the story here? How does an older guy show up out of nowhere and have a hit and then uh, honestly disappear again? I have to tell you, John, it's very perceptive of you to see how old I was, because we were trying to make me look very young in the video, but it didn't work, obviously. <laughs> no, 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 no. You look fantastic. No, 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 no. But, you know, for my my story is very interesting in the sense that you are totally right. I came into a solo career very late in the picture. All the previous years had been me writing for other people. Yeah. And I feel very fortunate that when I did break with this House of Stone and Light uh, and, and toured with the record, I was at the age where I could really perceive what it was all about. Oh, I'm but, sure. I'm sure. I, because of all my writing with different people, Robbie Robertson and Go West and Paul Young, they all yeah. sort of said to me, you should make your own record. They kept on telling me, make your own record. Right. And right. a lot of my demos that I put out, people would say, who's singing that? You know, that sounds great. And I'd say, well, I'm doing it just for other people to record. Uh-huh. And they uh-huh. just encouraged me. And luckily, the years that I wrote with Bernie Taupin, and we wrote These Dreams and We Built the City, there was an A&R man that worked for a publishing company that said, whenever you want to make a solo record, Martin, I'd love to do it. Well, out of the blue, his name was Bob Scoro, and he worked for Chapel Publishing, and then he went on to Mercury Records, and then out of the blue, I came to him, and I think I scared him to death. I said, I'm ready to make a solo record, and I'm 110 years old. So he was... (laughs) Uh, but he said, you know, I really love the songs, and I played them some demos, and so we went for it. And to tell you the truth, John, I was very surprised myself that House of Stone and Light really broke through so big, because really? it wasn't the obvious song, I think, that was going uh-huh. to break through at that time, although I was sort of touching the feeling of Melissa Etheridge and a lot of that yeah, sort of hooting the blood. that's exactly what I thought. Yep. Yes, and I, thought, I think yep. I, I tapped into that. But really, yep. the, it was right, writing with Robbie Robertson that gave me the confidence to make a record later in my yeah. life and to also pursue that. But you are Good. totally right. I, I, re, I, I was very, I think, fortunate that I, re, I released a record that did well when, when I was in my later years because yeah, I was able yeah, to maybe. perceive it properly. Yeah. Right. Okay, you're kind of stealing my thunder here because i got to tell you the mind-blowing portion of all this. So for whatever reason, I've never forgotten how mystified I was by your solo album and and the marketing. Every now and then I would just think, well, yeah, what was that? Where did that where did that guy go? What was the story there, I wondered. Yeah. So, for whatever reason, I've always had I always had that floating in my mind. Now, cut to about 3 years ago. Okay. I'm listening to one of my favorite albums of the 80s by a band called Q-Feel. And <laughs> I... happens to be me much younger. Yeah, okay, now you're catching on. So, all I know about Q-Feel is the song from Girls Just Wanna Have Fun.
the album's really hard to find, and I so I don't. I've downloaded it. Um, no offense, sorry, but that was how I got it. That's the way it so, so I don't have any information on who the band is. I know I can look all that up, but that's that's what I'm leading to. So this one day I'm at work, and I'm like, now, who in the world were Q-Feel anyway? Let's, uh, I don't even know who they are. Let's, let's go to YouTube and see if there's maybe an interview or some live footage or something like that of Q-Feel so I can figure out who these guys even are. Well, you know, we, we are a bit mysterious, and we, on, we only made one record for yeah. Jive Records. We were the actual first band that Jive Records signed back in the early 80s with Flock of Seagulls. Really? And uh, the band really consisted of myself and a, and a guy called Brian Fairweather, who was a guitarist, and we wrote together a great deal. We, we, were, we were writing songs for various different artists, and then we went to Jive Records, and, they, and we played a few songs to them that sounded very techno and very much uh-huh. in the 80s vibe. And we, we were very influenced by synthesizers and new technology. Oh, and yeah. Jive Records basically said, you know, go in the studio and make us an EP. And we, one, the first record we re- released didn't do too well. The second one we put out was Dancing in Heaven. And that uh-huh. really took, took off in Los Angeles uh, on K-Rock. Yeah. And so the music, nice. it, it took off here nowhere else. We, we couldn't get arrested anywhere. But in Los Angeles, they really took to it. And wow. that, actually, that record brought me, the band, Q-Phil, brought me to America. Although Jive Records couldn't break Dancing in Heaven and Q-Phil into a really big place like the Thompson Twins or, mm-hmm. as, as I said, you know, Tom Dolby, it basically uh-huh. that record broke me into meeting with Maurice White of Earth, Wind & Fire. Oh, gosh. And oh, a, lot of the, a lot of the people I, I wrote know. for really loved that record. So the key to me starting in Los Angeles was basically Q-Phil. That's how it started. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I assumed. So I'm watching, this is about three years ago, and you probably know this, or maybe you'd rather it not be out there, but it is the most <laughs> glorious, glorious video from 1983 oh of you I, performing. I to, I'm going to have to jump in here because that wasn't meant to be a video. And I'm going to let you in on a secret here. That, okay. we, 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 did, we did the Eurovision Song Contest, at uh-huh. England, which uh-huh. is a very, very unusual to America show, which in England, mm-hmm. there are six songs put forward, and the best song goes through to vie for a place in the Eurovision mm-hmm. Song Contest against Italy, Finland, Germany, France, all these different European countries. And we just went for it. We, we did it for fun. And uh-huh. the scary thing was, this, at the beginning, the song started to do very well, and we thought, oh, my God, we're going to win the contest. This is going to be embarrassing. Uh-huh. But that video was formed from BBC just filming us doing that really? TV show. Somehow, somebody put it out on the YouTube. It oh wasn't a professional video. It wasn't. Really, it wasn't behind Qfil. We just went. Oh my God! It, it's released. You can see in the video that our influences. I'm sure you can relate to this, John. Uh-huh. We're American and the Tubes, and we were very influenced by really? Pee Waybill and uh, love the Tubes.
the completion backward theory. So what we mm-hmm. were trying to do, even with that video, even though it was BBC TV and it was very sort of, should we say, European cheap, we were trying to uh-huh. say, we know we're not going to win this. We know we're a little bit funky and a little bit strange. So we're going to do a, a uh, takeoff of the tubes. So that's really what that video is really? about. Oh, that's fascinating to hear. <laughs> I love the tubes. So to know that that's what the influence was, was it, that's great. Yeah. So yeah, so I watched that video, and it's the, I mean, it's just as cheesy and beautiful and wonderful <laughs> as it can be, right? There's and the dance and and the you're sucking on nitrous oxide or something like yeah, that. Yeah, we, we thought they, you know, my father worked for British Aerospace, so he brought across the Harrier jump jets to the American Marines and NASA. So when we were oh, going to do the TV show, I said, well, let's do something that's a little bit unusual, and let's make out that every time they film me. I'm taking a, a, a drag oh of laughing gas or something. What that's confused them. And what so that's where trip. it all came from. Yeah, we were trying oh, to be a little great. bit alternative, but it's, it, uh, uh-huh. it, it shouldn't have got out there. I'm, it really wasn't well, an official video, but uh, you yeah. spotted that. Yeah, oh, it's <laughs> the best. And so I'm looking at this thing, and I'm at work, and I share it with all my friends. Like, guys, wait till you see this video, because I get a lot of flack for being, like, the 80s lover, and everyone's yeah. like, oh, the 80s. Anyway, yeah. so... I'm looking at the information that someone has put on the video, and it says Martin Page. And I think, are you kidding me? This guy is the same Martin Page that I've been confused about for the last, what, 10 years or whatever? I'm confused myself, John. I'm very confused myself by by thinking about this. This is confusing me as well. <laughs> I hope I'm not dragging up no, like no, old, no, 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 no. you know, skeletons or whatever. I'm a bit of a chameleon, but, so everybody's oh, surprised. Yes, you, you know. are. That's what I'm saying. So, I mean, I'm not a very smart person, and the only thing in this world that I know anything about is music a little bit. And so, I'm what what a scientist must feel when they combine a couple things and they sure. cure cancer all of a sudden. That orgasmic rush of accomplishment. That's yeah. what I felt when I pieced together that the Q feel guy. And the Martin Page that I've always wondered about are the same person. And then all the songs you've written. And so I, it's like my, my jaw was on the floor. And well, of I course, it's not the kind of thing that I can share with anyone. Your name should be Sherlock Holmes because you've done a lot of real studying here. There's no doubt about that. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. That's, that's just an, an example of all the junk that swirls around in my head. So a question I have for you, we're going to touch on a lot of things. But first of all, what in the world is a Q-feel? And what is Orbital Bebop? Well, I want to know what those are. Well, when we formed the band, Brian and myself, we were very much a techno band. So we were influenced, as I said before, by Tom Dolby, uh-huh. uh, bands that were experimenting with new technology in the 80s. We were using the Fairlight. We were very much into synthesizers. So I spoke to my father and said, I'm, you know, I'm looking for a, uh, a title for the band. And uh, my father told me that there was a, uh, and I said, the, the band has a lot of funk in them. They have a lot of energy. We have rock. We have all these different elements. And so somehow my father mentioned the word Q feel. And I thought, well, oh, that sounds interesting because I love Quincy Jones. And I thought Q uh-huh. were quite nice. funky. And I, yep. I always felt, John, that we wouldn't break through in England that we would break through in America because I loved Parliament. I loved... Yeah, I'm, 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 a, ma- I'm a massive record either. collector. I lo- yeah. So I grew up on Bootsy Collins, the funk, I'm a bass right. player. And so I thought when, when Dad, my father said Q-feel, I said, that sounds good. What does it mean? Because I like the word feel as well because we were mm-hmm. trying to get funk into our music and rhythm. And he said mm-hmm. Q-feel is the energy that a pilot feels when he puts his finger, his hand, 
around the controller on the joystick on an airplane. So that if you push it too far, you know that the airplane's not going to break up. You pull it back to, so there's not too much pressure. So on jets, Q-feel means on, on jet airplanes, the yeah. control of the joystick. And I thought, well, that's really, you know, quite wonderful. And that uh, explains the yeah. airplane motif in your Eurovision yes. and, it, and it, if, if you really study the Q-Fill record, our, our second single was Heroes Have Never Die. generation that was a very big you know impactful cultural movie to kids i'm 42 so people my age and i, I mean i'm a dude and i like that movie you know yeah, my, well, i had a younger sister she loved it so it yeah. still gets played it's well, still it's recognizable strange, it's, it's not buried on an obscure movie you know it's a strange thing for me john because i grew up in the 60s with the beatles and motown and then when i broke through it was the 80s and now living this length of time, I realize now that the 80s is quite, quite an iconic sound mm -hmm. to uh, younger people, and that the 80s actually 
made quite an impact because yeah. even though Dancing in Heaven was in uh, that movie, I didn't really think much of it. Then I realized, sure. then all of a sudden, I thought, Good gracious me, it's, uh, Dancing in Heaven's become a bit of an iconic signpost to the 80s. Yeah, it sure has. And I, I would venture most people don't know, couldn't name the band that sings it. Oh, no, I don't, we're, we're totally unknown. They, yeah. No, yeah. it's yeah. just they recognize it because they've seen that movie and they love that movie so much. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So that brings you over here. Now, so one of the things, I mean, there's a million things about your career that I want to ask you about, but let's talk about We Built the City. Say you don't know me. I recognize my face. Say you don't care who goes to that kind of place. Need even the hoopla. Sinking in your fight Too many runaways Eating up the night Marconi plays the mamba Listen to the radio Don't you remember We built this city We built this city on rock and That is one of the most iconic songs and also divisive songs ever. I mean, yeah. <laughs> it, it, you know, I mean, you know this. I mean, I hope I'm yeah. not. Yeah. You, it's a, it's a song everyone knows. It still gets played today, but it's also on the top of like you know worst songs of the '80s <laughs> lists or whatever. And you're doing, you're doing me a lot of favors today, John. Well, Thank no, you very much. let's see. I. I <laughs> I hope you I t- hope you appreciate no, that no, I, no, I no. approach I think, all of this. I think, this it, with, I think it all depends. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I, I I'm coming to you as a fan, yeah, wanting yeah, to yeah. know how you, as an artist that I care about, feel yeah. about these kinds of things. You know what I'm saying? Well, it's so, uh, it's a, it's, a, it's a funny thing actually. You know, we were talking about Qfield, and uh, we built the city was written around the same time. I was I didn't realize that I was going to be a songwriter writing for other bands and other artists. So We Built the City was written for Qfil. It was going to really? be a song, a song that was going to go on past Dancing in Heaven. And wow. I was still writing in that 80s vibe. Here I was in LA, and, and people were taking interest in me and uh, Brian in mm-hmm. the band Qfil because they thought we were a new sound. And then other people came and heard my demos. And Bernie Taupin, uh, Elton John's lyricist, was put yeah. forward to work with me because he wasn't working with Elton. So he gave me some... He gave me the lyrics to We Built the City, and I thought, and I knew that Bernie was trying to move into the future. He was having mm-hmm. a little bit of a hiatus with Elton, so he, they, they, were, they wanted to bring him to somebody young and fresh, yeah. and that was me. And he brought me, the first two lyrics he brought me were We Built the City and These Dreams.
know that I wanted to do demos for Bernie, because I loved Elton John, and I grew up with Elton John. I grew up with uh, Yellow Brick Road and Tumbleweed Connection, so this was a dream for me to be riding with Bernie Taupin, and and it was a bit of a test. Bernie gave me the lyrics for We Built the City and These Dreams as a test to see if it would work. So I did the demo, very modern, uh, on an eight track. It's very different to the Starship version. I had um, a feeling I was very, very that. different. Much darker, yeah. and okay. it's much more like Shock the Monkey, to, you know, mm. by Peter Gabor. And we fin- and I did the demo just to basically lure Bernie into working with me. Then Peter Wolf, who was the uh, keyboardist uh, working in town at that time, he was a uh, working with uh, Dennis Lambert and different producers, he heard the demo and said, I, I'm about to produce Starship and I want to do this song. Well, no, I no. never even knew who Starship were. I knew who Jefferson Starship was, but right. I wasn't a great fan of, shall we say, the stadium American rock music. I got it. Okay. But, mm-hmm. Bernie, but to get a cover early on with Bernie Taupin was very special. So off they went and they recorded We Built the City. Very different to the demo, very different. So I take a lot of stick for the, mm-hmm. the, for the way Starship recorded it. And then I think the stick comes basically from people loving White Rabbit and the, the past yeah. of Jefferson Starship and thinking sure. that they sold out. Well, for me, as a young songwriter in Los Angeles, and as Bernie said in Rolling Stone, he said, if you hear the demo that Martin did, you mm-hmm. did it's a different creature altogether. I believe it. But I was very, very thankful to, to yeah. break through and have a, a big hit. And, you know, it's, it's, I've just got to give you this little anecdote, which is quite funny. I was working yesterday with Jack Hughes from Wang Chung. I was going to uh, ask you about him, too. The two of us have written, supposedly, in Billboard's history, the two worst songs ever made. So we, oh, so we both shook hands. <laughs> we got films saying, you've written everybody's, everybody have fun tonight, and I've written We Built the City. We are number one. Of the oh worst songs God, ever created that's in life. True. And then someone oh, shouted out, "But you're, but you're running to the bank." I said, "I Ex- suppose we are." <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, of course, that's going to be my question, right? So, so you. First I've of all, never that, had a song. I have to say, John. You know, yeah. and I, I take all the crap that people throw. They don't. Really, they've never heard the demo, and if they listen to Bernie Taupin's lyrics, and uh-huh. I, I know you do, on "We Built This City." There's a much deeper element in what we're talking about. And Bernie's, you know, the, the greatest lyricist to me uh, uh, yeah. in the pop world alive. So it's really quite ironic that people think, I think that what they're judging is Jefferson Starship's long history in, in, in the music so business. But it was very funny for me and Jack to just look at the camera and say, yes, That's we amazing. are number one at the worst songs ever written in time. Oh, my God. <laughs> that is crazy. <laughs> I would go nuts in that room with the two of you just thinking about that. Yeah, we just finished some sessions together, and we were just giggling about it, saying, oh you know, at least God. we're, we're, we're going to be number one in some chart forever with yeah, these two. Yeah, wow. <laughs> well, let me ask you this, and, and I can cut this part out if, if the answer is no. Do you have a, a, a recording of the original demo? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, I have a demo of it. I've mastered it and everything. You know, there, there was talk of me putting this demo out, you know. But, uh, okay. I, I think years and years ago, a, a small album was released with number one demos, and I think it was released. But I'm very in- attracted to releasing a lot of my demos. I'm hoping I can make that happen on my own oh, label because it would cool. be nice for everybody to see the yeah. demos I did with Paul Young and Go exactly. West. Exactly. You're behind so many iconic songs. So, okay, so going back then to We Built the City, I'm curious if when you heard it then, obviously you heard a different song in your head when yeah. you recorded it. And, I mean, Bernie Taupin's track record sounds nothing like 
what the production of that song for Starship yes. sounds yeah, like absolutely. at all. Right. So yeah. when you heard it, are you thinking, this is nothing like what I had in mind, or are I, you I've okay with this, it? I, I've said this many times, John, and I think it's uh, old hat, and I think people probably who follow me know that I've said this a million times. It was I was very thrilled to get the get the cut because it was me and Bernie outside Elton getting something from the outside and I was a great fan of Bernie Tolfin's work. When Peter Wolf took me to the studio to play me the track, everybody involved with the record, RCA and even the band and everybody said this is a number one song and that you should hear it and I didn't like it at all I must admit, I thought it was bombastic and I thought it was stiff and I didn't like it. I thought, well, it's just great we've got a cut, but I wasn't thrilled with the way it sounded. Mm -hmm. But as I've said many times, as soon as it went up the charts, I started to like it more. Of course. And then when it hit number one, I thought it was the best thing on earth. Exactly, exactly, (laughs) exactly. I I admit to that. And and over the years, and I have to say this on behalf of Peter Wolf, he'd also recorded, you know, uh, uh, Jack Hughes and Wang Chung. With uh, Mm -hmm. he was the producer for Everybody Mm -hmm. Have Fun. And both mm-hmm. Jack and I were saying, you know, he gets a bad rap. He's he's produced two of the songs that are rated the worst in the world. But yeah. really, if you think about what Peter did, he brought out the best of that song for that oh, band. absolutely. And I've absolutely. never had a song uh, recorded more times than We Built the City, although yeah. people like to rail against it. Of there's course. almost a 70% that uh, are in love with it. So Good, good. That's what yeah, that's is. my feeling, too. I've thought about this a lot because I think that came out in, what, 85 yeah. Maybe 86. So I would have been 12, 13 years old. And I loved that song as a kid, you know? Yes. It, it wore out its welcome eventually, as most pop songs do that get overplayed. It's nothing sure. against the song or the quality of it. Sure. And, but you're right. I think over the years, for whatever reason, it's been propped up as like a punching bag. Mm-hmm. That it's just an easy thing to beat up on. My personal feeling is that in the right circumstances and in the right frame of mind, that song is the exact song you want at a certain moment when you just want to have fun or you want to let your hair down or you want to dance around with your friends or, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's, it no, may I, be I, I have a lot of cheesy. respect. It has Absolutely. a fun value to it as You know, well. I, I'm very proud of the song. I have no Good. Pro- I am very proud of the song because harmonically and chordally, it's very unusual for a rock song. I'm a songwriter. And I've been doing this for over, you know, 40 years. So, no, harmonically and chordally, it was written at the right time. And if you mm-hmm. if you strip it back and you look at the way it was constructed and you look at Bernie Taupin's lyrics away from the picture, and if you yeah. do hear the demo, I mean, I went to UCLA to, to talk to some songwriters and I played the demo of We Built the City. And kids mm-hmm. that were 18, 20, 22 years old came up to me and said, we love the demo mm-hmm. more than the record because there's mm-hmm. something darker... And in fact, on the record where you hear the DJs, you know, saying mm-hmm. sunny California, sunny San Francisco, mm-hmm. what the record company did, which is very wise, they had every town put their own insignia yep. on the... Well, on the demo, I just turned on the radio and just picked up a police report of, a, wow. of some trouble going on downtown in LA. And I just recorded it because I was very... It's a very experimental demo. It's very, very... The demo is very, very funky and dark and... And as I said before, it's got a, a lot of Peter Gabriel can yeah. German influences yeah. in it. It was just that Peter Wolf, the producer, had mm-hmm. great vision on how to move the song into a different yeah. place. But well, no, I couldn't be more proud of the song. Good. It's done me the world of good. It seems to be one of the few, you know, I'm very lucky. It's one of the few songs yeah. that seems to transcend time and yeah, keep, walk, keep walking on, you know. It certainly does. Okay, well, we can move on to some other songs. One last question, though. I mean, I assume... 
and you you can be as specific or as vague about this as you wish, I assume you still make a great deal of money off of that song because it must be licensed for movies and commercials and all the other things. That, I mean, it wouldn't still be ubiquitous if we weren't hearing it a lot. And that you've got to, you probably do okay. From well, that it, it, I'm very, very fortunate that probably in my career, and I, I think it's a terrible time for songwriters now and with, yeah. with the technology and streaming and, and everything being really, there's no reverence really for music as much as it was in my day. I'm very fortunate that if, uh, maybe... You know, and I've written hundreds and hundreds of songs, and maybe four or five that are played constantly, and I've sort of yeah. fallen into this kind of wonderful place of what they would call an everlasting, evergreen, eternal yeah. kind of a playback song. I'm just very fortunate. You know, I mean, times have become extremely tough for the songwriter They're with iTunes and new technology yep. in the digital yep. format. Although it's wonderful for for us to move faster. The songwriter and the person who wants to put perfection into his music and into his recording is definitely lacking the reverence from the audience, and that's to do mm -hmm. with technology. But yeah. I'm just fortunate because I've got a few songs, not a lot, yeah. a few songs that people seem to want to keep playing, so I'm very yeah. fortunate. Yeah. Well, a lot of people only have one. A lot of the bands I've talked to for this podcast, they had one hit, and they're still trying to scrape together a living off the one hit. Some of them do. You've yeah. got four or five that are still out there in the public consciousness. Yes. So, Okay, so let me ask you about a couple others. One of my favorite albums of all time, probably top 20, top 30, is Robbie Robertson's first solo album. Oh, great. Thank and you. And that was another huge ta-da moment when I'm reading your credits three years ago of everything you've written. I realize your name is attached to one of my favorite albums ever. Bernie Taupin and Robbie Robertson are two of the most like classic, iconic songwriters in history. And here, you're just a younger upstart. With, I a mean, punk. you've got I'm the a, talent up. Coming in, I'm a punk. Coming kind in, of, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, you're yeah. a younger guy with obviously huge amounts of talent, and you uh, you just managed to enter into their kingdoms. I would say worlds, but they're kingdoms with those two, and you get to share in their glory and in their talent. How how does Robbie Robertson bring you on to write a couple songs with him? Well, I have to say here, John, that your, your perception is very strong because you're hitting on something where at a, an angle in my career when I, when I took it very serious to not be seen in one light. I'd grown up as a huge record collector, an obsessive person, probably like yourself, that all I did yep. was listen to 45 singles since I was... 10 years old, and collect, and collect, and collect. So I had yep. this kind of, you know, we joked about Q-Phil earlier and how I'd moved into my own career, but I had this chameleon kind of rainbow look at popular music, mm -hmm. right from Frank Sinatra, right through to cluster German bands and Cannes yeah. and Earth, Wind and Fire and Funk. And uh, I just had this overwhelming uh, obsession with popular music, and I bought everything. So I studied everything. Good. So I after you know, way. after we built the city, I suppose, and really we, we we broke through just after that with these dreams, which was a much more mm -hmm. uh, atmospheric song for heart. Yeah, and definitely. everybody sort of looked at these dreams and 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 wonderfully said, I was lucky. They just said this is a very special song to go number one. It's uh, unusual. And uh, Gary Gersh, that was the A and R man at uh, Geffen Records at that time had also taken some of my songs and Brian's songs from Q-Feel and taken them to Kim Cairns. 
and he liked oh, the yeah. way we were writing. And he said, "You, you two guys remind me of Squeeze. You're like two of the greatest." Really? Yeah, like you're, you're, oh, you're, I the, love you're the two. That's hit. high yeah. praise. And we grew up, Brian and myself, wanting to be Motown or Bugatti and Musker or the two songwriters, Rod Temperton, the guys that wrote for everybody else, yeah. as well as having our own band. Well, Gary Gersh, who was a very visionary A&R man, said, I want to put you not only with Kim Carnes, I want to put you with Robbie Robertson. And I went, I didn't really know who Robbie Robertson was. I t- sure. I'm embarrassed to say it, but from England, the band weren't really quite as big. Yeah. They I didn't know either until the I discovered his solo album before I ever figured out who well, the band was. Well, you were the same as me. So I'd heard, yeah. and at that time I was writing with everybody. I, I just wanted to break my career through. So when an A&R man said, would you collaborate with Melissa Manchester? Would you work with Tom Jones? Would you work? I was like, yes, 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 yes. I just want to learn. I want to learn. I'm, a, I'm an apprentice. This is great. Mm-hmm. Well, Karen Gersh heard my songs gave a few to Kim Carnes and said, there's this guy, Robbie Robertson, you must know about him. And all I can remember is that I bought a single back in England years ago called Rag Mama Rag that broke in the English charts. And I thought, that's a really funky, great, unusual track. But then when I went to meet Robbie Robertson, nobody really told me too much about him. And I thought I was going to meet a country and western artist. Mm-hmm. And I thought, mm-hmm. I don't like country and western. Right. I better wear some boots or a steps and I don't know how to deal with this. And I had no idea. And I think that that, John, was the why I worked with, with Robbie so well. We hit it wow. off straight away, and he was very much into, because he hadn't written for a long time, I didn't know really too much about him. I think yeah. that's what really turned us on together. I was into, he said, well, he said to me, you know, I, I'm into the Cocktail Twins, I'm into, pre- nobody really understands it. He said he that? Pre- Robbie Robertson oh, yeah, was into the, the Cocktail Twins? And I was into, blue, I was into the Blue Nile, an English, a Scottish yeah. band, and I, I love them. Yeah, and I played them to Robbie. He said, I love the, the feel. Now, Robbie is pure heart and soul, and he's a storyteller. You know, the, uh-huh. And when I heard him speak, I thought, this man must have come out of the Civil War or something. This is yes. like, unbelievable. And we just hit it off. I made him laugh. He told me great stories. He told me about wow. Bob Dylan. But you see, at that time, John, being really honest about it, I was a pop songwriter that brought in the hits, and he loved that. He was like, bring me something that has spark. And that's what Gary Gersh said, bring Robbie something that has spark. Well, I didn't bring him anything with spark because I was very, very influenced by Robbie's emotions and his spirit. Mm -hmm. So I brought him Fallen Angel. I don't believe it's all for nothing. It's not just written in the sand. Sometimes I thought you felt too much And you crossed into the shadow land And the river was overflowed And the sky was fiery red You gotta play the hand that's dealt you That's what they owe Wrote, yeah, I, I was going to say, that's like the moodiest song, one of the yes. moodiest songs and on the album. And to be honest, to, to wrap this in a ball without talking too long, is the deeper side of me, as you can see in my later work, and my own mm-hmm. solo work, is very much in akin to what yep. I was moving towards. And that was that more was exactly emotional what I was music. Thinking. Yeah. And yep. So Robbie spotted that. And again, for me, I'm jumping forward, but when I did make my own solo records mm-hmm. in House of Stone and Light, 
Robbie was one of those guys that said, I love your demos, I love your approach, you should make a solo album. Wow. And I'm getting back to the way you started the interview. You yeah, said, yeah. even though you're older in life, you're at the right time to record your solo record. Sure, so sure. that's what I did. And yeah, I, you know, he recorded on his in a little room at the village in Los Angeles in a small room. So I went home and put a studio in my garage, and I emulated really, you know, what Robbie was doing. Yeah. Brought a lot yeah. of the musicians in that I. The, but the key to this really is I felt like I didn't want, and I don't mean this derogatory, but I I wanted to sh- to go into a deeper emotional area of mm-hmm. what my songs were. I was known for Dancing in Heaven. I was known for mm-hmm. I Pretend with Kim Carnes. I was known for We Built the City. I touched, I just basically touched the outskirts of emotion with these dreams and with Bernie Taupin. And yeah. I wanted to basically last. I wanted to not be thought of as a songwriter that would be thrown out after two weeks. Mm-hmm. So it was very important for me to learn from the masters that wrote yeah. songs for song's sake, not just for hitting the charts, but for song's sake. And uh, yeah. that's how Robbie came in the picture. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. because, And that was going to be one of my questions for you as well, because, like you said, Fallen Angel and These Dreams sound more akin. I've been listening to all of your solo stuff lately to kind of gear up for yeah. our conversation and get a better feel for who you are as a solo artist. And those two songs sound way more akin to what your solo stuff is. Totally, totally, totally. totally. You're totally on it. And and, and more satisfying to me. I mean, we get older in life, and there's no doubt. I'm very lucky because I've been in the business for such a long time that you realize that um, you can't be right. You can't write Dancing in Heaven again. Mm -hmm. You can't write We Built the City again. It's to do with like a sportsman. You're at your best for a certain thing at a certain time, and if you're very lucky, you can move into a different into management. You could you could move up the tree and you know help other people and find really where you're most comfortable. And really, where I'm where I'm most comfortable is in melody and in harmonics. And then because of my bass playing and my funk, I've sort of brought that in underneath um, the soul of really writing. And of course I come from England, so I grew up in the church. I remember when the rivers dried, when the moonlight died. I remember well, I remember when the Now that you say this, it makes sense. So 
it sounds like your solo stuff, and it's obviously because it's your solo stuff, but that's more who you are. You can yeah. write it. If you're a hired hand, you can write a song for whoever you're writing it for, and it can be whatever they want, and you can yeah. you can adjust or be a chameleon for whatever. But the true Martin Page sound is the sound that comes that moody, thoughtful, instrumental, hymn-like type stuff that comes out on your solo album. That's I, who you I are. think you're totally right, John. I'm a little bit under the radar, and I quite like that. I mean, uh, my my um, influences are very easy to read. I love harmonies and music. I love good chordal sense. Um, and I'm, I'm still, you know, as a child, I'm still following really the songs I loved as a kid. So if it was Abraham Martin, John by Marvin Gaye, or What's Going On by Marvin Gaye, I'm still following that. Yeah, and the rhythmic yeah. sense is still there. But I'm I'm not the young kid running around the track at high speed saying I just want to win the race. I'm right. thinking more about I'd like to run again, and I'd like to right. do another race. I'd like to uh, keep in the picture. And that's really where these my songs on my solo album have come from. Over the, okay. over the years, and also that you know you, you grow up, so you go through a lot of um, yeah. lot of pain, a lot of success, yeah. a lot of pain, a lot of success, a lot of pain, and as you and if you're lucky enough to write for forty years, and I think that's if if you're true to your art, some of that's going to come through in your music. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So, um, but through all, you know, there's a there's a third iconic song we got to talk about: King of Wishful Thinking. even though that song came out in 90, so it would have been after the Fallen Angel, These Dreams period. Yes. But it's back into more dance, upbeat. First of all, I love Go West. I think Peter Cox has one of the greatest voices Mm -hmm. in history. I love him. I love that song. So that was another mind-blowing thing for me that you wrote that one as well. So going back, when you wrote that song, did you – Envision it being played by a synth pop band, or were you envisioning something darker? No, I'm, I'm just like moody? you, John. I'm just like you. I heard their first album when they they they, they put their first record out, and I I uh-huh. was so knocked out on MTV watching Peacock sing, and I thought this is England's greatest soul singer. Yeah. There's a Paul Carrick, there's a Robert Palmer, yes. there's a Paul Young. We sometimes brew up these incredible soul singers, and Pete Cox's voice just knocked me over. And yes. I've been very lucky because I'd worked with Earth, Wind, and Fire and the Commodores, and I had these uh, incredible R&B singers around me. Yeah. And there was an English guy, you know, uh, with, with what I saw with the with Go West in their first album. And I was a fan. I was mm-hmm. an absolute, like you, a fan. So when I'd had my hits and Go West came to America to look for... Go West were trying to break America, and they, and they mm-hmm. didn't break after their first single. And so I was put with Pete, uh, with Pete Cox to write, and we wrote a few songs together, and we really hit it off. And uh, because I was such a fan of their music and knew where they'd come from, they took to me. 
and we wrote King sure. Wishful Thinking and Faithful together. And I imagined, because I wanted them to break America, and, I, and they were such lovely guys. Mm-hmm. In fact, only two weeks ago, I had to film a, a little documentary for them to compliment them on being in the business for 30 years. Oh, good. They're, they're still rocking good. in England. Oh, I know. I love them so much. I wish you'd come over here. Yeah, my, yeah. They're, they're, everybody's waiting for that. But I, my yeah. vision was, um, what would Go West be like with Prince? And mm. wouldn't that be pretty amazing? Because Peacocks can sing the telephone book, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was listening to the radio and I heard um, She Drives Me Crazy by um, Fine Young Cowboys. Yeah, and I thought, mm.
Yeah, and then, then, I, then he, because we hit it off, he took me on to his solo album, and he took me into a couple of productions with Barbara Streisand and Neil Diamond, which was very lovely as well. Wow, that's amazing. Wow, good. You've just been, you're just like Zelik. You've been in, involved in all these iconic projects. Oh, and the last one i got to ask you about, you played synthesizer on the Ghostbusters theme. <laughs> Ray was very sweet. I mean, he sent us all the gold records, and uh, oh, nice. we still get 
checks for it. You know, we still. Oh, didn't. good. Okay. Because we also played on the on the uh, soundtrack on the uh, actual to the movie. I'm doing all the weird ghost sounds uh, all through the oh, film. Oh, really? Yeah, with my keyboard, and I'm you know no I was just doing way. all my synthesizer stuff. So Ray was very very sweet, and he let us know that our first job in America did well. Oh, wow. <laughs> You're you're the man, Martin. I can't oh, believe you're, you're sweet, John. Thank you so much. <laughs> That's I true. That. Let's take the rest of the time just to talk about your solo stuff for a minute, okay. because you put out House Stone and Light, and like I said, it's to to an outsider who doesn't know anything about you, it's this strange apparition of an album that comes out. I liked it. I mean, I liked the song and everything. It was a little I, adult, more adult than me at 21 years old, but I sure. respect it. Yeah. But then um, I didn't hear another word about you. I never, I never heard a second single. I didn't know there was another album. As far as I knew, you were just this thing that floated through and floated away, you know. And so, in preparation for talking to you, I find all these other solo albums. So, what did you do between '94 and 2008? What did you do in there? Well, you know, House of Stone like broke. Everybody thought it was Sting. For some reason, and yeah, they even, did. Even Mercury Records had to sort of put a big sign up. This isn't Sting in the record shop. <laughs> it's um, true. Yeah, and you know the the single just kept on climbing and climbing. It took a, it took a year to break, and uh, and, uh-huh. and why I think it became successful was because I I worked the radio stations very hard and made some great relationships. After that, Mercury Records went through a bad period and they folded. Yeah. And yeah. we did put out a second single, but uh, Mercury didn't really uh, push it. And after that, there was no reason to be with Mercury Records because they were totally going to fold and go into a, a, a different kind of thing. So I just backed off and just looked at the situation. I loved the touring we did with House of Stone and Light. We did very, very well. I mean, the record, I think for two years running, was uh, most played uh, airplay record with Amsterdam. Mm-hmm. So it was right. one of those uh, very, very powerful records that made its mark over a period of time, had longevity. And for me, as you say, uh, John, as an older artist, it was wonderful. And mm-hmm. I backed off at that point when I was when Mercury Records was no longer going to uh, be in business. And I thought about my career. And at that time, my mother and father, who I was very close to, passed away. Oh. And when they passed away, I decided to take a year off to step back from all the craziness that I'd been mm-hmm. involved in since the 80s. I mean, yeah. you know, we're talking about yeah. 2015 now, and I'm... I'm, I'm I've not stopped working. So no. it was a, a period when I really had to look at the ambition I had, uh, the push I'd put into it, and, and was it worth it? And did I want to do the same thing? Well, after a year of just sort of reviewing everything and, and getting a sense of where I was, I decided to do it again on a smaller scale, under the radar. Mm-hmm. I think it's, a, it's perfect for me to be um, recording songs that I care about and believe in, um, yeah. it, w- it wasn't easy when you're um, even working for other artists in the 80s and 90s. It was wonderful because you're a young sportsman just doing that. But you realize when you're working with these people that they're under the gun of the record company. And I thought, well, it's pretty pretty nice to be a songwriter because you basically write the song and then you back off. But the poor the poor artist has to go through hell. Yeah. You know, they, they want you to be a certain image. They want you to do a certain thing. As a songwriter, I thought this is a wonderful art because you write a really good song and then you can back off from all the craziness. Well, mm-hmm. after after my mother and father passed away and I'd had the success with House of Stone and Light, I decided to start again on a low-key uh, release records that I really cared about. And that's really mm-hmm. where, you know, the last 
period of my career has been. I've just been releasing okay. records that I really love. I haven't been thinking about the charts. I've been I've, mm-hmm. got, uh, I've been thinking more about what I want to create and what I want to say. Now I, I, that's a luxury. There's no doubt about it. It's not easy. Say, yeah, it's a luxury, yeah, and I really you're in a uh, position to do that. I don't I take guess. that for granted, but but yeah. I think in my uh, uh, as a child, I would have thought this is a lovely place to be because nobody's telling me if it's right or wrong. It's coming from the heart, and it's what I feel, and that's what mm-hmm. we're doing now. Mm-hmm. Okay, that makes sense. How do how do you make your primary living today? Is it through royalties from the past? Is it through record? No, I'm, I'm, sweeping, record I'm sweeping the streets, John. I'm sweeping the streets, well, and cleaning people's houses. And I'm a, taxi, I'm a taxi driver later at night. Oh, that's too bad. A guy <laughs> with your talent deserves better than that. That's sweet <laughs> of you. No, it, you know, I think it's a lot, I'm being very honest, it's a lot to do with the songs that came, you know, uh, in the mm-hmm. 80s and the 90s. Good. They, well, they, you they, deserve they, that. Well, they're, they're songs that I'm surprised myself. They, they keep generating yeah. income. And I have to be real honest again. I'm one of those guys that got into art and music and doing it and recording people and, and mixing with people I love to, to make art because I loved mm-hmm. it. I didn't yeah. think about money. I didn't think of, I, I wanted to be successful. Right. I, I had a huge ambition, but it was a naive ambition. Mm-hmm. The key here is naivety. It's the same enthusiasm that you have for the music. You've got mm-hmm. a, a sense mm-hmm. that it drives you on because it, totally. it, it empowers you. Yeah. So uh, I'm just very fortunate. I think it, it's yin and yang. You know, some mm-hmm. people are going to struggle with it. Some people are going to be very lucky. I don't think it's uh, mathematical. I don't think it's really technical. I think it's to do with possibly at a certain point you love something so much you do good work. Yeah. And that good work, and I and it's only going to last for a certain amount of time. You know, maybe in mm-hmm. 30 years' time nobody knows anything about what I've done, and I understand that. Mm-hmm. But if your songs can move from the 80s to the 90s to 2000, yeah. it still means something. Well, you know, royalties aren't like they were, but at the same time, I think, wow, that's amazing. Some of these yeah. songs have become in the mainstream. Some of yeah. these songs they're living, become, breathing creatures. Yes, yes, it's, yeah. it's you know, it's it's pretty phenomenal to me because I never. What I'm trying to get to is, I never really planned this. I sure. just I loved something. Yeah, and the same yeah. with your podcast. You know, you love it. You do it, and yeah. for some reason, even when it's not good, and I got turned down so many times, and we never had hits, and songs were never taken by anybody, and you never really hit the charts. Nobody knows who Q-Flo is. Nobody right. really knows who I am. But the right. songs, the songs yeah. themselves, find their way through somehow, and I think that's po- possibly to do with the um, passion and the heart of why you I'm do sure it. I'm sure it is. You know. Well, and, it's, and I keep going back to this. It's the talent, too. I mean... You wouldn't have had the success you had if you hadn't been able to capture something, a feeling, a mood, a sound that people wanted to hear. I mean, it's not, it's, there's some luck involved, but it's also a lot of talent. I mean, not everyone can just stumble into writing four there's or no five doubt. or being involved in four or five of the most iconic songs of all time. There's no doubt you're right. There's no doubt that. I mean, I studied bass guitar for many years and played in many bands through England, just learning my trade. I was an amateur mm-hmm. and, a, and a, an apprentice for a long time. And you learn everything. You learn how to work in studios. You learn how to talk to people. You learn how to have relationships in studios with people. You learn how to collaborate. You learn how to sing. You learn things. But if you love something 
so deeply. If you, and I don't want to make this all sound romantic, but if you really care for no, it, 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 does. it will you will learn because you will yeah. take so many defeats. You take so many yeah. defeats in learning, but the defeats don't mean anything. They don't mean yeah. anything. They just you you just go right. Well, we lost that battle. We win another one. And I think that's just pure naive passion and love for music. So I will study out in John's chords. I will study bass playing. I will study how an engineer works. I will study yeah. how a voice sounds on a microphone. This comes without you really thinking anything. It's a process to getting something you love. So that's how you know. I I, I, would, I, could, I can't take, talk about my art as technical. Technical. I can only talk about my art as passion. That's how I feel. Yeah. And I think that yeah. luckily, if you write maybe four or five songs that people seem to uh, get an emotion from, well, then you're just very fortunate, and maybe your passion is allowing you to spend your life <laughs> doing yeah. what, you, yeah. what you love to it's do. True. You know? Yeah, you won. You won a lottery there, yeah. and you deserve it. Absolutely. Um, well, good. Well, that's pretty much everything I wanted to ask you about. Thanks. Thank you, Martin. I've been fascinated by who you are as an artist for so, well, for the last three years especially, but I've had a curiosity about you for 20 years now. Oh, and um, appreciate that. On behalf of people who love music, thank you for having the talent that you did, or that you do, because you, you put things out in the world that make people's lives better. And that what, mm. what more could an artist ask for? Now, so, for just, with, just with those words, John, it's, it means everything to me, so I really appreciate it, and I appreciate you... Uh, Looking at you know finding finding the invisible me, so I appreciate I, that very much. I, I will, me too. All right, Martin Page. Now I'm blown away by the number of people that he's worked with and the amount of things that he's done. It's so fascinating to me. He's worked with some of my favorite artists. By the way, I should tell you. I tried to get my hands on that demo of We Built This City, and he is obviously not the only person involved in the creation of that song. And everyone who is, including Bernie Taupin, has made up their minds and sort of made an agreement that they're just not going to share it randomly with everyone. And he apologizes for not being able to share it with us. I get it. Hopefully we can take his word for it and just know that what he wrote and what he had in mind was very different than what came out. Still though, great guy, great music, a legend, honestly, a legend. By the way, the song that we're listening to, it came up in conversation, it's by Kim Carnes. It didn't come up enough for us to kind of slot it into the conversation, but he also wrote this one. So I just wanted to kind of leave us with another song that he wrote in keeping with all those other great people that he worked with. All right, next week is another fun one. We're talking to a guy named Dig Wayne, who was the lead singer of a British kind of alternative soul band in the early 80s called the Joe Boxers. And they only had one hit in the States, mild hit, I think it hit number 36 or something like that in 1983 called Just Got Lucky, which is still, it's, it's an incredible song. You hear it now and it's just as fresh and lively as it was back then. It sort of re-emerged when it appeared on the 40-Year-Old Virgin soundtrack, which I was really happy about because I love that song and I love that band and I was so glad that it was kind of getting back out there. Dig is now a acting coach in LA, but we go back into his whole history, growing up in Ohio, his love of rockabilly, moving to New York, then moving to London, the period of you know what the Joe Boxer's history was. It's really fascinating stuff. 
Huge thanks as always to Jan, the man, Makevich, for producing this and putting it all together. We're so grateful for him. Thanks everybody for listening. We'll see you next week.